conversations with your friends and family, I bet that you have shared uh, many of the same concerns about the challenges confronting our country, indeed the world. Today's guest, Blair Shepard, who is the global leader for strategy and leadership at PwC, he followed up on this premise, working with his co-authors, talking with people across the globe, and found that they're dealing with many of the same issues. In his book, 10 Years to Midnight, he and his co-authors both identify and offer urgent, an urgent pathway, if you wish, for how we can confront and perhaps make progress on the emergencies that we're facing. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. It's great to have you with us this morning. Let me remind you that you can purchase a copy of 10 Years to Midnight for Urgent Global Crisis and Their Strategic Solutions by going to our strategic partner, Dallas's independent bookstore, interrobangbooks.com. And as our viewers know, you can always get that 10% discount with your online purchase, not just for 10 Years to Midnight, but that any books that you might just place in your shopping cart. I wanna also thank our program sponsor, PwC. And while I'm mentioning them, let me just add that over the years, Blair, we have had uh, directors on our board from PwC and the company has just been an enormous supporter and truly a good friend of the World Affairs Council, both here in Dallas, as well as other councils throughout the, throughout the country. Let me remind you to keep up with World Affairs Council programs that you can always go, of course, to our website at uh, dfwworld.org or go to YouTube and uh, just type in DFW World and you'll be able to keep up with all of our programs. So I mentioned Blair has been uh, head of, uh, been the global leader for strategy and leadership since 2012. He joined PwC after a very distinguished uh, career at Duke University. And you know, those of you who are members of the World Affairs Council, you know that I can never resist talking about University of Virginia. So I'm holding my, my cup here that shows that University of Virginia at last beat Duke in the NCAA. But Blair was a dean of the Fuquay uh, School uh, and uh, also a professor for nearly three decades. And one of his really important legacies is he was the founder of the Corporate Education Program which is really truly one of the, the best uh, corporate executive programs in the United States. So Blair Shepard, great to have you with us. Glad to be here, Jim, thank you. Good. Well, tell us uh, what motivated you to, to leave, your, leave Durham. I think you're living outside of New York. Uh, what, what motivated you to jump into the corporate world? I actually still live in Durham, actually, the, uh, because my wife teaches at Duke. Sorry about okay. that, Jim. Um, and she's a faculty athletic rep, and so we probably shouldn't talk about that anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, essentially what happened is I had uh, left Fuqua to start Duke Corporate Education um, because I thought the world needed it. And, um, and then was asked to come back because we were trying to find a dean who could help the school innovate, um, sort of rediscover its innovation. And in the process of that, persuaded the university that we need to open a campus in China. So I essentially uh, was the architect of that, um, and just did the deal. Um, and so I worked myself out of a job. I was a head of Duke Corporate Education, happy to do that the rest of my life, went to be dean and then did this thing in China. And so instead of going back to the faculty, I thought I'd just you know, be a university president, actually interviewed down in Texas um, and, and, and was uh, almost going to take a job. And then the then chairman of uh, PwC said, Blair, I have a proposal for you. 
And he said, you help us think about what our strategy should be like at a network level, because PwC is sort of the UN, you know, we're a federated structure. And so an integrated strategy is hard to create. And then make sure we have the people who can lead it. And you almost never get those two in the same job. And uh, so I thought it would be kind of fun, did it, and uh, have never looked back. It's been great. Was it a new position that the company yeah, was right now, Actually, essentially, I, it, it was, it was, he essentially created the job because he thought I could do it and we had those needs and he thought they belonged together. And so one of the questions is, as I look at what to do, um, how to slow down a bit is who takes it next. And so if there's anyone on the call who's interested, let me know. <laughs> so is your work more directed internally or it, are, are you working been, with clients? It's entirely internally. And actually there's a thing about this, which is I had um, the goal of the job was to be quiet and invisible right, help the chairman, the head of the US, or the head of the UK, whoever the leaders are, think through the strategy and then, and then create the talent, help develop the talent. But essentially the findings we started discovering in this book made me say, I just can't be quiet anymore. I'm just, I'm too nervous about the future and therefore I have to talk. But um, so it's internal and um, it's, it's really, it's an interesting time to be worrying about strategy and leadership in a professional services firm. Well, of course, it's just changed dramatically. I, I guess we could say approximately mid-March. Exactly. <laughs> when, when, when you, st you know, obviously you were working on this book before COVID-19, and we'll, we'll talk shortly about how COVID-19 impacts much of what you wrote about. But was there an aha moment when you said, this is so urgent, these crises are so critical, I need to sit down? And was there one crisis that really uh, made, drove you to this decision or is the fact, as I read your book, it seems that in a very real sense, there, uh, there's a, sadly a symbiotic relationship. They're, yes. they're integrated. Yeah. So, so let me affirm your point, by the way, Jim, that actually part of what we're trying to get across is that these form a system and you can't fix one without worrying about the others. Right. Um, but there were really two ex events, two experiences that sort of drove the desire to write the book. Um, the first one was, when we, when we did these interviews, it started because the chairman said, Blair, it feels like the world's getting gritty. Can you go find out what's going on, right? So we interviewed people all over the world, government, our clients in the private sector, people in civil society, and then just listen in coffee shops. And the same worries came up again and again and again everywhere in the world, Jim. They were identical, different, the context was different, but if you listen underneath, it was the same worries. So I said, there's something going on here if everyone in the world is worried about the same things. And then the second one is, as you'd hope we would do, we then started doing the kind of empirical work to, just, to see if it was real, if the worries were legit. And every time we came up with a worry that was really big and we have like, we had 10 years to deal with it or we fell off a cliff, it just got way worse. And so that was the one that said, you know, I had written in 22 years. And so it was essentially the discovery of we have 10 years and we, in all of these things that work together, we have a decade. And, and I said, you know, if we don't, if we don't frame the questions right and start addressing them, we're really in trouble. So time, time to put pen to paper. So you and your co-authors, did you divide up the work by countries or by the crisis? So we originally did the work. Um, what we did was we, we, we identified the worries from these five worries, right? And then we went to 14 countries and we did pretty deep dive in each of the countries. We did, um, you'd expect them, US, China, India, UK, Germany, Russia, Australia, Canada, the, you know, the, the, the ones you'd think of. And then we took a few others just to make sure we had representatives. So we included 
a couple in Africa, um, a couple of smaller countries in Central Asia and Southeast Asia and in Japan. And, um, and it was that data the, that sort of made us say, we have a really serious set of crises on our hand and the same everywhere in the world. They, they play out differently, but if you dig underneath them, they're the same thing. And therefore, and, and they're really profound. They're, they're going to take a lot of lifestyle change. And I will say, I think one thing that is so valuable about, about your research in the book is that so often when there are books along these lines, Africa is totally neglected. Yes. And clearly, yeah, yeah. as we talk about this over the course of the next hour, uh, Africa has some really tough issues to face. want to be sure that we get some questions, so please do send them in. Well, spoiler alert. What are the crises? So there's four, right? Um, and uh, straightforwardly, the first one is crisis of prosperity. And, and what we mean by that essentially is that people think the future is going to be worse than current times. Enough people in the world feel that way. And when you feel that way, you stop dreaming, you stop inventing, you stop creating, you stop trying. And essentially, you can think yourself into a depression, right? Um, and so because of the disparity that's happening in the world, there's a lot of people being left behind who, who just don't feel prosperous. That's the first one. Second one is um, sort of the unintended consequences of technology, right? And, and there are two technology sets in life that are everywhere. The first one is the Industrial Revolution, right? And the people who invented the Industrial Revolution over time never meant for carbon equivalents to be in the atmosphere, but they are, right? It was a completely unintended consequence. And because it's everything, so when you study it, what you see is it's how we, how we grow our food, how we transport things, how we build, how we manufacture, how we move, even how we vacation, they all entail carbon equivalent production and the consequences um, it, it it puts the whole world at risk in a way eventually the other the other one is that platforms that we're doing now essentially we're we're conducting this over a technology platform and there's some unintended side effects of those platforms that are really quite profound and if we allow them to sustain they're pretty worrisome the third is essentially because of those two in a way people are losing faith in institutions. And, and here's the data point that's scary there. 18% of people in the world globally feel like the system's working for them. Only 18%. That's a really scary statistic. And then the final one is our sense is that the leaders we created and we developed and who grew themselves are good at running the world we're leaving, not the world we're entering. And so we need a whole new kind of leader. And if we don't have those leaders, then the other three don't get fixed. And the problem's hard because they're dealing with a world that's broken apart where we're polarized and it's hard to bring people together where the problems are really complicated and we don't trust them very much to begin with. So God bless a person who takes a leadership job today. And so we have a lot of work to help them be successful. Those are the four. Let's talk about trust in institutions first because mm -hmm. you, you, you made reference to the Edelman Trust Barometer. Yes. And if you had asked me which country was going to be on the top, it's not what I, <laughs> it's not what is there. Yeah. 
so China's on top. And, and by the way, Jim, answer your earlier question. This is the one that worries me the most. Because if we lose faith in institutions, life just doesn't work. Institutions are for people what water is to fish, right? And, and as we talk about this Edelman Trust, I don't, clearly you must have some confidence in it or you wouldn't have included yeah. it in the book. But tell us a little bit about their methodology because I, I just can't imagine that China is number one. It is number one. It's going down fast, by the way. Uh, but 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 it is number one. India's high too, right? So so it turns out um, what they do essentially is they survey people in um, I think uh, 60, 70 countries, and they do a pretty good job of sampling. They they don't necessarily get the interior of China necessarily, but but they do a pretty good job of sampling. And um, they conduct the survey in native language, perfect translation across and. Um, and they ask the same questions of everybody and they use the same methodology. So the surprising result is that um, China, trust in institutions is the highest in China of anywhere in the world. It's declining though. Um, and, and if you think about it, the reason in part is that even though the Chinese institutions aren't really as robust as other places in the world, lives are still getting better there. Right. And, and so people are saying, Blair, let me interject just real quickly, because we do have uh, a comment from one of our viewers. Would you define institutions? Yeah. So institution is um, all the things that sort of make life work um, that are assumed in the background. So police system, legal system, education system, tax system, the financial markets, uh, the political system, essentially the, the things that we need to be stable so that we can get on with life are essentially the institutions. And, um, and this is why I'm saying I'm worried about it, that because we've lost faith in them, um, it's hard for us to move on. And uh, if it goes bad enough, essentially, people say, well, the system isn't worth it. And you know what happens when that occurs? It's not very pretty what happens when that occurs. And, and, and Jim, what's interesting in that is the irritation with institutions is getting hotter. So think about Wall Street sit-in, it was pretty hot. If you think about Me Too, it was pretty hot. You think about Black Lives Matter, it's really hot, right? And so, and in other places in the world, the same thing. It's not an American phenomenon. Belarus, Hong Kong, it's all over where people are saying, I do not believe the leaders nor trust the system in which I operate. And that's a really scary thing. So where was trust in institutions in the United States, say, at the turn of the century? Uh um, so it turns out it's declined year on year for the last 20 years. And so at the turn of the century, the U.S. looked great. Right. Um, and, and there's an interesting thing, Jim, which is really the reason institutions are failing is that 70 years of success. Right. We, we drew some simple assumptions and those assumptions are hurting us. Right. But, but the U.S. looked great and it just went down year after year after year after year after year. The other thing that happens in that survey is it the people you think of as well off, what they call the informed public, but it's really people who make a decent living and, and can access stuff like this. Um, they, they actually feel the thing's going okay. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. 
it's the other 80% of the population that feel like they're being left behind. And, and the, the fact is they are, right? So because of that, they don't trust. They're essentially saying, I don't think the future is going to be great. I, I don't understand what technology is doing to me. You guys are making that happen, so I don't trust you, right? And, and it's a logical conclusion to draw, by the way. Um, so we have work to do. Well, that gets us to what you call, I think, encumbered young people, people in their 20s and 30s and high cost of real estate, especially in major cities, although yeah. prices are plummeting in New York. <laughs> but you know, again, I thought what was interesting was just to see the, the data, uh, which I'm somewhat familiar with in the United States, but to see it in, in Russia and in China. Right. Right. So, so we talk about three groups, right? And um, one of them are the retirees. Talk about them in a minute. But if you think about the two groups that are younger, the COVID has really made life much worse for, by the way, Jim, right? So the first one are the people graduating from college who graduate with massive debt. And you think that's an American problem, but it turns out the average debt of a UK grad is about 45,000 pounds. And uh, because, because people are paying to live, right? So in China, same thing. Um, they, it doesn't cost any money to go to school, but they got to live, right? And so they're accruing debt. They're graduating into a world where the jobs don't pay what they paid when you and I started on a proportional basis because wealth is concentrated to us, actually, right? And, and then the ways you buy into success in life, including like a, housing mar a house, actually are un unapproachably expensive. So in China, it's ridiculous. The five largest cities in China the cost of an apartment, the way where you live in China, is 40 times median income. Now, any bankers on this call would say, I don't lend over three times income. So they're never going to access it, right? Um, and in Australia, it's I think the discrepancy in Sydney is about 22 times the starting salary for kids. And so... The, one of the ways we build wealth is getting unapproachable. Now, if the world crashes, that goes away, but we don't want the world to crash and we'll crash for the other reasons I described. So, and, and, and clearly what you're saying with Black Lives Matter is this enormous discrepancy, disparity in wealth transfer uh, between yes. whites and, and, and black families. Yeah, it, it's an intergenerational thing that's gone on for a long time. And essentially, you know, uh, blacks are 11, 12% of the population in control. I think it's three to four percent of the wealth. And so it's that's that's another form of disparity. The other group that I think are increasingly in trouble are those who are in the middle in the middle of their lives, their kids off to school and they've got a mortgage and they got a car. The the potential for job loss, which is going to increase year and year and year as we include AI and robots in our lives, um, will actually disrupt them at a time when they're just stretching to make life work. And so we can put them way behind the eight ball. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to move to demographics yeah. and uh, also jobs. And I remember hearing here in Dallas at the Federal Reserve Bank of, of Dallas, um, Bob Rubin came and this was, I guess, about two years ago. And he said, you know, it's always hard to predict, but within the next 10 to 20 years, 40% of the jobs that we now know will be eliminated. Yes. Of course, part of that was driverless cars and trucks, and I don't know where we stand on that now. It looks like it's not coming around the corner as we once thought. But talk about your thoughts about where we are going to be in, on, on job, job elimination because of AI. So we have a debate in PwC around where we think this lands, right? I mean, there's a half of us that think it's going to be pretty good in the back end, and half that think it's going to be terrible. But everyone agrees the transition is going to be awful. 
So, so if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, Carl Benedict Frey has done the best work on this. Essentially, the transition to the world we live in, where lots of jobs, lots of wealth, was really awful, right? And I think we're going to experience the same thing because we're going to disrupt work for people who have had who who never thought their work would be disrupted, like the people who work for PwC, right? Um, it's coming after white collar and it's coming after all jobs, right? And so our best guess in the U.S. is that 40% of work is at risk in the next decade or two. Um, now, I think there are things that will come on the back end of that, but the transition is going to be really hard. Again, it's a decade, by the way, Jim. <laughs> I, I, I recognize that. But I think you might have renamed your book, you know, the, instead of 10 years, should it be maybe six or eight years because of COVID? Yeah, yeah. Um, it may be eight years of midnight, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so what COVID did was two things. It took all the crises we described and accelerated them, right? So the disparity is greater. More people are without work. Small business has been hammered. And, and so... There's a whole set of people who had hope and don't now, right? Um, and so the crisis of austerity is worse. Um, we move people to platform. And so those who are tech savvy, you know, the, the, the best guess about the shape of the recovery is a K, which is that people who can conduct business like we're having this conversation actually are better off in a way because they'll make equivalent incomes, but they're not spending as much money. But the individuals who actually have to make a real living, like my dad used to describe it, do real work, right? And like this, um, their lives are getting a little bit worse every week. And so it's declining. So we're going to see this growth away from each other. Um, and, um, and so that just, that, that, so technology and platforms and their consequences accelerate disparity. I think we are just as polarized as we were before, maybe even more. Um, and in some ways, we've lost trust in institutions even more because it's not sure we can believe them, right? right. And, um, and, and so we've accelerated. Then what's happened is we've created the crises that are, that are actually COVID-specific, like 80% of the businesses on this call have a pretty tough balance sheet. 20% are pretty lucky, but 80% have a tough balance sheet. We've got to bring customers back and employees back safely. Um, we're going to have to recover small business. And then there's massive national debt. Our national debt is the same as Second World War, and it's not stopped. And may grow even more, depending it on what type of subsidy more. may come in. So work. let's go back to Africa and demographics, because that is really terrifying. Yes. So um, the oldest country in the world is Germany, right? Um, Monaco, actually, but that's sort of like saying Southern Florida is the oldest country in the world. Um, but, but Germany, Germany is the oldest company, country in the world at, at 48 and a half, a lot catching up with them. Africa, there are 28 countries with a median age under 20. The total population of those countries is 885 million people, right? The average of those medians is 19 years. So what you have is a half a billion kids that need an education and a job in the next decade. That's terrifying. Because if you think about it, the way Africa could have done it is the way China did, right? Which is low cost labor and environmental destruction, essentially, to an environmental arbitrage and then sell low cost goods. The problem is that we're not buying. And post-COVID, we're going to localize even more manufacturing, right, um, and more supply. 
and they're competing with AI and robots that get smarter, cheaper, faster every day. And so, China, so Africa doesn't have the same capacity to sell low-cost labor as a way out of the problem. So we have to completely reinvent development. And think about this, Jim. In 10 years, we have to rethink the economic development model. We have to put it in place and we have to create work for those kids. And very hard to do, as you say, when you've lost faith in institutions. Exactly, exactly. If I don't believe the, any of the World Bank or the WTO or any of those guys, then it's really hard to execute against any of that. And so it's a tough, it's a tough row. So when you look at retirement too, I mean, we have, you know, you and I are both baby boomers. Yeah. How does that affect the United States right now as part of this as in the demographics? So again, this is a phenomenon everywhere in the world, but the U.S. has kind of the nastiest looking version of it, right? Um, although Russia- Horrible in Japan and Italy and, and- Russia probably does actually, and Italy does. But, but in, in, in the U.S., the problem is, um, if you're in the private sector, 92% of the people in the private sector either have a defined contribution plan or no retirement plan, which means those people had better be saving money. Okay, 48% of the people who are approaching retirement have less than $10,000 saved for retirement. They're going to retire broke, Jim. I mean, I don't know how long it would take you to burn through $10,000, but I wouldn't want to live on it the rest of my life after I retired. And, 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 and then if you go up to 40,000, it's up to like 60, 65% of the population. So what's happened is that people have had to spend their future to live today. College costs went up, so they borrow from their 401k plan to put their kid in college, right? The, they're keeping a house alive. Whatever it was, they're borrowing, and, and, and there's a reckoning. And the problem is, in the market we're in today, um, you know, it's not clear that you're going to get the kind of returns we've had for the last 20 years. So even if you plow your money, if you're 58 and you plow money in for the next seven years, you may not get that much back. And, and I don't see them doing it actually. I mean, we're, we're, we are, except for those who are already saving, like you and I, as I said, the ones that are on the positive line in K, our lives are going to be better. We're actually saving more, but everyone else are actually taking money out just to live. And so retirement's a, a, a burning crisis that we're not watching. And then think about the other one. Public sector has a pension plan and it's indexed to COLA there's going to be a pretty unhappy debate between the private sector retirees and the public sector retirees in the United States. It's, it's not going to be pretty. Let's talk about a few specific examples. And, you know, audiences of the World Affairs Council here and are debating all the time about globalization and the benefits of globalization. And clearly there were some uh, losers. Uh, you're you're really proposing that there be a return to a, a local mindset, uh, really coming from the bottom up. Yeah. Uh, talk about what you mean by that and then share some of the examples, including the one in your hometown. I have to say, when I would go to Durham in the, I'm dating myself in the mid 70s, there wasn't anything there except a great university. You got it. And uh, and you would say not even all that great a university, Jim, being from Virginia. <laughs> but, but so, um, so, so the issue in part is that um, globalization created massive amounts of success, right? Um, and, and we had these three things that, that cohabited that worked. So we said globalization is good, technology is good, and simple measures like GDP and shareholder value are good. What and it turns out those are right, but incomplete. 
And so their incompleteness came back to bite us, right? So essentially, uh, globalization mapped with technology where winner take all tends to accrue to platforms meant that people were being left behind. Because we were measuring success at the national level, we didn't see it. For years, no one was seeing that parts of the country were losing. For years, no one was seeing that individuals were being left behind because GDP was growing like crazy, right? It's only when you dig underneath it and you say, actually, let's look at the distribution that we see we have a problem. So, so the argument basically is that it's not that we need to replace globalization with local. It's that we have to put creating thriving local economies first or the world's in trouble, right? So here's the analogy. I swam in college. So imagine the world works such that there were only three really good swimmers and three really good runners and three really good whatever gymnasts in the world. The Olympics would be pretty boring. If you wanted to fix that, like we actually did with USA basketball, by the way, and Canada with hockey, you'd actually go back to local towns and you'd, and you'd recreate swimming pools and running tracks and, you, and you'd build up strength locally. Then they compete at the state level, then they compete at the national level and eventually they go to the Olympics. It, you have to rebuild thriving local economies so there's nothing to globalize except a few concentrated places like Palo Alto and New York and Dallas. And that's not a healthy country. So the argument is let's balance globalization with the recognition you gotta start with thriving local economies let's balance tech with humanized. That's the argument, right? So how did it happen in Durham? Um, it was really interesting. So when I was there, it was a town that you, 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 were, you were worried about living in really, right? Um, and uh, so this guy from Raleigh who identified that internet was important to TV stations and got ahead of it and made a fair amount of money. And there was a, an African-American mayor, second black mayor in Durham, and then the EVP at Duke, who got together and said, you know, it, the whole region's in trouble if Durham's in trouble. We've got to do something about it. So Jim Goodman, with a lot of people unhappy in Raleigh, put his money in Durham. And what they did was really interesting. He said, what's the thing that people think, think is a bad heritage? So the heritage of Durham was tobacco. And if you remember Bull Durham, we had a baseball team that was famous, but no one went to the games and it wasn't a very good team, right? And so we were famous for two kind of corroded things. Um, and so what they did was they took the tobacco warehouse and they remade the, the, the one that the Duke's family started at and they remade it into this amazing location that was on the Southern side of town. So you brought the wealth from Duke into downtown to that. And then they built a beautiful baseball stadium and upgraded the team right beside it. So then baseball and tobacco reconfigured became kind of the mantra. And, and then, they, then they localized. So farm to table, local manufacturing, and there's all these sites where you can buy Durham. Right? And, um, and then the other thing they did was we were very inclusive. It, what had happened just before I arrived in Durham is they paved, the, the Durham had the, highest number of successful entrepreneur, black entrepreneurs in the United States per capita. And then what they did was they paved over the part of town where all that happened with a highway. Um, and so we destroyed it, right? And, and that has did, happened in so many cities in the United States, including right here in Dallas. And then what they did was essentially what happened is an inclusive. So there's a lot of black entrepreneurs engaged in this activity in Durham. And it's a, it's a wonderful success story. So I have a question from Christian Henderson. Uh, thanks so much for, for this. A lot of investment is going to Africa from China and the U.S. Uh, are you saying these investments will not contribute to jobs within the next decade? 
And are there not certain areas we see the middle class rising, such as Chris says, Kenya? Yeah, so um, you find some cases where there's tremendous success, right? Like Rwanda, interestingly, is a very successful country. And the president's fantastic there. So if you think about the Chinese investment, I just think it's a terrible um, debt that China's imposing on Africa. So essentially, they are building out the kind of infrastructure that creates a Chinese replica economy. If I'm right, that that's the wrong answer, and Africa's borrowing to build that, um, it's a pretty unhappy um, debt that's being created for Africa. I think there's a lot of money that's that's going into the country and it's helpful. But I think if you look at the places like Rwanda and Kenya, where there are successful entrepreneurs, we have to replicate that. So, so here's the order of magnitude. There's a guy in India who's doing this in India and Africa. His estimate in India is we need to create 10 million successful new businesses in the next decade. And his view in Africa is it's twice that number. This is game, is that right? Yeah, it's game. It's twice yeah. that number. The view of Africa is twice that number. Now, it turns out, think about the total number of businesses in the United States, right? 10 million in 10 years is like unheard of, right? And, um, and so I think the answer to the question is, yes, you can point to pockets of success. But if you take Nigeria, unemployment among youth looks like it's about 80%, right? And so we're going to have to take the success we're seeing and multiply orders of magnitude more successful entrepreneurs and small businesses in Africa. So they build a self-sustaining economy that can compete in the world. Um, it's doable, but we got to get to it. So Margarita Cates asks, do you think the UN 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda has failed preparing us for crises such as the pandemic? And so, you know, how do they uh, adjust or are they obs obsolete? Thank you, Margarita. Great question. So, so, you know, the reason we went to a single measure of success GDP is that when you focus on over 30, you can't figure out what to do, right? Um, and, uh, and so I think the issue with the SDGs is they're right, but there's too many. And the problem is when we try to fix everything, we fix nothing. Right. Um, and so part of what we need to do in the world is agree on a few things that we think are really, imp really more important than the others and then make sure they provide leverage against the others, right? So, so the, the, if you think about strategy, one of the things you do in strategy is say, what's the one thing I could do that brings everything else with it? And, and so what are the one or two things I could do globally that would bring the rest of the SDGs with it, right? And so I would prioritize the SDGs. They're not wrong, they're just too many. And say, which ones are most important? Let's drive those globally and drive those really hard. And if you think about COVID, what COVID did is it taught us how to do things massively and fast. And so you know what can be done, right? Um, and then back to the pandemic, I actually think the tragedy of the pandemic is we knew it was going to happen. You know, if you take a look at the preparation for the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, one of the three things they're told to focus on is pandemic. So if we know that the leading military guy should be thinking about what to do around pandemic as one of the most important things they do in their job, it was knowable. Now we didn't know it was gonna be COVID, but we knew it was gonna happen. And so I think this is a case of lack of foresight. And climate change as well. I mean, our climate change, yeah, yeah. So two things that scare me, Jim, because they're existential, right? One of them is if we do not address climate fast enough, it, it puts life as we know it at risk. 
The other one is if we do not address the institutional distrust issue fast enough, it puts society at risk. And those are both existential risks. And let me just do climate quickly. In all the calculations, we haven't included the biology very well, and we, and we don't really know how the feedback loops work. So let me give you three issues of feedback. If we get over 1.5 degrees centigrade hotter, coral dies. And the tundra releases methane. Um, and then forest fires increase, like you're seeing in California, right? We get hotter, drier, and get forest fires. So here's the problem. Coral and forests are the Earth's lungs, and methane is 30 times better heat capture gas than CO2. So we're contributing to heat capture, and we have no way to stop it when we get to that. And the problem is, after the Paris Accords, we added five gigatons of uh, CO2 to the environment. We didn't take it down, we added to it. So um, that's one where we may, where we have a decade um, and we, and I just don't see us moving fast enough. Well, let me just then bring in this comment and question from uh, one of our viewers from Rarwood. Uh, won't distrust of institutions make the embrace of radical change easier, not harder? And it's really I would add to that, you know, where, where do you work in the fact that science and experts have been sort of at times put to the side? Yeah, and actually delegitimated. Um, and, and by the way, to uh, harming themselves, right? So one of the things that is that, that scientists are giving us point predictions that we pay attention to, but don't look at the comprehensive piece, right? And so we have to do science better um, in some ways and interpret it better. But setting, agreeing with your point that we aren't trusting it, I think there's two things about that question. First is it's true. If what you want is revolution, destroying trust in institutions is a good thing, right? But the problem with revolution is that it tends to redistribute poverty, not wealth. Um, and, and I, frankly, I don't want to redistribute poverty. I don't want all of us dragged down and then have to build back again. And, and I think actually there's a way to do it. And if, if we reconfigure institutions without giving them away. So part of what we have to do is say, for every institution, what was it really designed to do? Let's remember that and then innovate like crazy around that, right? What was and we've certainly school? seen mission creep with so many institutions. All over the place. So in, uh, in several multilateral institutions, for example, 89% of their budget has nothing to do with their core mission. And they don't have big budgets. You think the WHO has a budget that's the size of a U.S. hospital. So if we have mission creep, they're not going to be able to do the job well because they don't have the capacity. So it, our institutions have to go back and say, what's the, what's the real thing we're trying to do? How's the world different? How do we reinvent it? And I agree that the alternative is revolution. I'd rather not have one. Uh, I'm glad to see so many questions and comments about Africa. And let me just uh, read both of them and ask you to comment. One is from Peter Sharadin, a new viewer, I think. Is this a small loan policy or is the small loan policy prospering in Africa that has been so popular in the media uh, in your estimation? I, I assume he's talking about microfinance. Yeah, microfinance. And, yeah. and, and let me just read this other one too to work it in uh, from Chris again, Chris Henderson. Africa is the fastest growing uh, mobile telecom market in the world. Uh, doesn't this increase con consumer spending? Yeah, so, so let's start with that one and come back, right? So okay. one of the great initiatives in the world is Smart Africa, right? Where 
there's a set of countries in Africa that have actually pooled their money together to try to actually bring Africa online. Um, and what's and it actually looks like what's going to happen is think of it as a sovereign fund across a region versus a country, and they're using that money to actually accelerate uh, movement to mobile and movement to high bandwidth tech. I think it's a huge opportunity, and I think it will create all sorts of things. But we didn't have to apply it to the other parts of life. Got to apply it to agriculture. Got to apply it to building. Got to apply it to mobility. Um, but it's it's a really it's a source of optimism. I think particularly for the thing I was describing about massive growth of entrepreneurs. The other one's interesting. It's less successful than you would hope. Um, it, it, what it does is help people who are really impoverished start, but it doesn't help them create scalable businesses very easily, as much as you would like in Africa. And, um, and I think the other issue is that a single part of the answer, this is back to your point about the system. If you fix one thing, you don't fix the stuff around it, that one thing ultimately fails. So changing the source of finance is not enough, right? We actually have to make it easier to start, start small businesses. We've got to educate people. You've got to change the systems concurrently to bring it forward. If you go back to the story of Gain that you, you, you mentioned in the, what's really impressive about his idea is he's talking about all of the points we have to touch to get successful small business to occur. Financing is one of them, but it's not the only one. And, and so I think it, it's, it's fight, you know, the little engine that could, this is a little engine that couldn't because we're not helping it enough. Let's talk about uh, a case that you, you wrote about, which again, surprised me because mostly what we hear is, is somewhat negative and, and that's Brexit. That yes. Brexit in a sense creates an opportunity. Yeah, so the interesting issue, that in our uh, CEO survey last year, um, people were withdrawing investment from the U.S. and China because they're worried about them. Um, and so there's an opportunity for mid-sized markets. Uh, let me use Canada as an example, right? Toronto is actually out-innovating Silicon Valley this year because people will feel safer putting their money in, in Canada and the kids are going to school there and staying in a way they're not doing in the U.S. right now. So, so if you take that example and go to Britain, the UK has a bunch of assets that serve it well. It's not big enough to scare anybody, but it's big enough to matter. It's got the per capita best of college education system in the world. You know, if you look at the rankings, they outrank us on a per capita basis. We're, we're the best in the world because we're the biggest, but actually you go head to head, they beat us, right? Um, London is a place people love to be. They think of it as their second home. It has rule of law, it has a pluralistic society. And so there's an opportunity, I think, for the UK to be a place where the world meets, convenes, and debates its fracture, because the world's falling apart. It needs a place to get together. Um, and it's a place where they could attract people from, take Africa as an example, attract the smartest kids from Africa, send them to the schools in the UK, get 90% of them to go home and rebuild the country, but actually 10% stay and build the, the next Silicon Valley. And so I think there's a, there's a chance for mid-sized countries to unleash their potential in the world like this and being captured in one of the big players like the EU or, or the US or China, you're in the middle of the fight and that may not be the best place to be. So I think there's optimism there. And, and we're certainly seeing from statistics provided by the Institute of International Education that the number of international students coming to the United States is declining in it's Canada terrible. and the UK and Australia are, are where they're going. 
except for COVID, right? I mean, we're none of them are coming anywhere right now. But but uh, but uh, after yeah, it's it's really true that we you know if you think about one of the sources of of innovation in the United States was um, uh, kids coming here, studying and staying and creating stuff, right? Um, we that's not happening, and they're going to go somewhere. And this is why I think the UK has an opportunity right now, which is essentially our our loss is their gain. Um, yeah. So uh, one of our viewers wants to know about the, the the future of big cities. Has COVID nineteen really destroyed the incentive for people to be in big cities? And will you see an exodus to places like Durham or Atlanta or Dallas or? It's Smaller a great cities. question. Now, Dallas is a big city, by the way. Um, so they, they, they might exit to other places in Texas. Not Dallas is a big city. Um, uh, but, but not like New York. Um, so, yeah, I think there's this really interesting thing. We had a megatrend we called urbanization, and we're questioning whether that's still a megatrend, right? Um, th there are two forces working uh, against each other. As long as technology is going like it is, and as long as we have the kind of trade we have, wealth will concentrate to the places that already have advantage. Two things working against it. First one is people want to live in big cities because they don't want to get on elevators and they don't want to be in crowded places. And public transportation is a concern. Yeah, exactly. And then, but the second one is actually, there's going to be a massive move toward localization that um, comes as a result of the security risk. So one of the things we learned from COVID is that nation states are at risk to supply being in countries that are potential enemy in the future. And so we're going to, you know, there's ways to solve that without localization. But I think an answer is going to be massive uh, repatriation of work. And so the advantage of being a global center won't be as big as it was. So New York will have to reinvent itself um, in a way with that in mind. And so I think it creates huge opportunity for other places in the country. If, if there's a smart town or two out there that are nice places to live, that have high bandwidth and have some people willing to put some capital down, um, now's the time to go for it and, and do some serious business development. I think you answered this, but um, I want to be sure we're responsive to David's question. Is global population growth still an issue, or do you see that flattening out in the future? Uh, I mean, it turns out as the world gets wealthy, population growth declines. Um, and the world got wealthy. The question is what happens post-COVID, but I think we're going to see reduction in population. But, but there's still an issue. If you look at um, Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, which is sort of the best book on how we could solve the climate crisis, um, I think the number seven item is education for girls. Because when you educate girls, they don't have as many kids, right? Um, and in the countries where they're not educated, they're, they're still producing it pretty serious scale children. And the danger is that um, that actually adds population to places that least support it. So if you think about a country that's gonna be underwater, have massive drought, those tend to be places where women aren't educated. So if we could solve that issue, I think we help. We're still a lot of people, and, and here's the thing to think about. I, I'm a little wrong in, in the numbers, but order of magnitude right. Making a, uh, a grande latte, takes 10 100 times more water than a cup of tea. So as people start living our lifestyle, we put massive pressure on the environment. 
And, and so economic success reduces the, the total size of the population, but it increases the environmental footprint because people are more consumptive. Well, just like we've seen with everyone using computers and online and all the smart devices, that's been such a, a drain. So in your title, it's um, Global Strategy and Leadership, and we've barely talked about leadership, and we have a few more minutes. Um, why, are, why have we been putting in place the wrong type of leader? Or is that not well, an accurate statement? Yeah, no, I think it's an accurate statement. And actually, you can blame me, right? Because one of the things I did was- All those people who paid all those hundreds of thousand dollars to exactly. go to Duke. Exactly. Why'd you go to FUPA and why do we pay you to run Duke Corporate Education? Um, <laughs> so, so, so the point basically is that the leaders are right for the world we were in. But if you go to a world that says, we need to manage things that are kind of paradoxical. So how can you be global and local at the same time, right? How can you be technology savvy and human at the same time? And we have to create leaders who can navigate things that feel at odds with each other. So let me give you two examples. Um, during COVID, the people we trusted were people who were really humble enough to acknowledge what they didn't know and seek input for lots of others but had the courage to decide anyway, right? Um, because they knew we needed a decision. Now, it turns out those are two things you don't often find in the same person, humility and, and pride enough to make a decision when it has to get taken. It doesn't happen to many people, right? Um, we needed people who understood the value of the expertise and technology, but actually understood how human systems work so they knew how to apply it correctly. A lot of times what would happen, we'd say, here's the solution, but actually it was psychologically naive. And so the person would have the psychologically right answer, but not understand what was the right answer. The people who had the right answer wouldn't know how to make it work. And so the most effective people could put these things that felt at odds to each other um, in the same person. And so we need leaders who we would say can navigate six paradoxes. Um, and they're hard, you know, to be technology, to, to be really aware and understand technology and then know human beings and human systems. We don't have many double E's who took psychology and sociology. We don't have many psychologists, sociologists, and political scientists who took double E or computer science. It, they're hard, it's hard to do, but, but we need to do it. Are we thinking of a woman in Germany? And she's really good, yeah. I think she's an example of- uh, Chancellor Merkel. Yeah, Chancellor Merkel, and even more, I think, than the Prime Minister of, of, of New Zealand who we talk about, because she actually might've killed the economy, right? What Merkel did, it was really interesting, is she brought um, really good public health officials, she brought really good epidemiologists, she brought really good economists, she brought business people, and she brought people from civil society, and she had them all describe the challenge. And what happened that's really kind of interesting is when you listen to that, it's an impossible problem to solve. So it took real courage for her to say, I'm gonna act. And what's also interesting is Germany, like the U.S., is a federated structure. And so the, the parts of Germany didn't have to go along with her, right? But, but what she did was she was politically astute and brought them with her. Um, and, and a piece of that was that they trusted what she said because she exuded integrity, right? And so those, three, those two things put together, which are, again, paradoxical, I think made her very successful. Um, you know, you've had so much experience um, teaching and working with executives, and I hope I'm not getting into dangerous territory. I can imagine uh, my program staff who's listening to this, but 
there have been some arguments or, or articles written that women leaders have been more successful with COVID-19. Uh, is there any basis for this in your view? So um, I think we'll know the answer to that question later because it's too soon to tell. We haven't seen how it played out, right? Um, but if you if you were to create a scoreboard, a balance sheet, there'd be an awful lot of women on the right side of the balance sheet, right? And so, so I think there's a case. I think we I think we don't have enough data, but I do think there's an important point in this, right? Which is if you think about the point I'm making, which is you've got to be able to navigate paradox. We need more diverse senior teams because everyone brings something. Um, and then you need the people on the team to respect what they're not good at. This is a really hard thing, right? Because usually we get good at things we like and we care about. So we don't like the stuff we're not good at, but we have to respect the thing we're not good at. So I do think that if, the, if, you, if you take a version of that argument and say, do we need more women in senior positions? You betcha. Do we need teams to be more balanced from a diversity standpoint? You betcha. Because no one's going to manage all six paradoxes well if we if, but a team could. And so I, I think that um, happy to come back. I'm not avoiding the answer. I just think it's too soon to tell. But but it, the the first blush looks pretty darn good on that side of the equation. And and this was not a, a, a setup, but I did see uh, your, your chairman of PwC interviewed a few weeks ago, and your company has done an exceptional job of really bringing in different views and, and, and different ethnicities. Yeah, I, I'm actually really proud of what we've done in the United States. This is, you know, my job is global. And so I'm actually not bragging about anything I had responsibility for, but I'm really proud of what we've done. Um, and what was interesting is that Tim Ryan, who's the, the uh, senior partner in the US, started focusing on diversity well before people understood it was an issue and actually co-formed the CEO council, right? He was one of the uh, primary inviters. Um, and it's become a major source of consideration for what we do at a policy level related to Black Lives Matter. And, and he did it because uh, he sort of intuited what we just talked about, which is the world doesn't work if we don't have diversity in the world. And actually, we have left people behind we shouldn't have left behind, and it's not fair. And so he did it on both moral grounds and practical grounds, which is, it's rare to get to do both things, Jim, where you can actually do something and to me, this is an important point for the book. Part of the argument in the book is we can actually do things as business that allow us to thrive, but actually make the world better at the same time. You, you almost never get that chance. And we have that, mo that chance at this moment in time and Tim grabbed it. And I'm really proud of what the US firm did. It's, it's, it's remarkable what they've done. With real so as we, we get ready to close this very interesting discussion, uh, Ray Termini asks, how do we produce a new kind of leader uh, one that recognizes that the world has changed. And, you know, I, I, I know how difficult it is to change curriculum at universities. But, uh, it seems <laughs> yeah. to me that that's an area that really needs some, where it needs to start. Is that not, not true? Yeah. So this is the other reason institutions are going to be tough, which is they change slowly, right? University curriculum are tough for, for a good reason, which we want things to be stable. But I think the, I think sort of two answers. One of them is we've got to get people in the world to understand the challenges we're grappling with at a systemic level. And, and so if there's anything I'm pleased with your questions, Jim, it was that you saw that in the book, right? That you said, Blair, it's not any one of these, it's all of them together, right? And, and if we can get them to do that, they'll start to realize what we need in a leader. And I think the second one is, we've always said in leadership is play to strength, 
which I think is right in one way, but we're going to have to say to people, understand your weakness and do something to mitigate it. Um, and so we're going to have to add to the development mantra. If you're really good at people, you probably ought to understand technology better, right? If you're a really good politician, maybe you ought to look at integrity, right? If you're really good at innovation, maybe you ought to go figure out what the core is and, and what the basic principles are and, and get people to think about the thing that isn't their strength and learn enough to know how to use it and probably hire to it, right? Um, and, and build your team that way. So I always like to try to end on an optimistic note. And sometimes on the subjects that we talk about, it's hard. But Alana wants to know, so what do we have to look forward to? How can someone, say, in their early 30s, prepare for a post-COVID world? Yeah, so I would say uh, a couple of pieces of advice to all of us as citizens. Find a place you love and make it better. That's the best way to do local first, by the way, right? It's find a place you love and make it better. Um, find a problem you care about and help solve it. Um, because it's going to take, as if you take the notion that it's going to take 10 million entrepreneurs in, in, uh, in India, it's going to take uh, several billion people to work our way out of this. And so we all need to go do something to make the place we care about better. I think if we do that, the, the other fork is really pretty, Jim. You know, we, we live, everyone lives in a community that's thriving and safe and a place you're proud of living in. Um, technology is advancing the nature of what it means to be in a human being and reconnecting us to the, the natural world we're part of. Um, the world is better integrated um, because it's focused on a few things we share in common. It's allowing us to be different from each other in ways we should be. And that actually, um, because leaders have to be the way they are, there's more leaders sitting in the world than we had before. And so we can depend upon a lot of people to help us move forward. So I think the positive story is really pretty cool. And if you think about what would it look like to, re to renew and rejuvenate universities, it would really be fun to do that. And there are some that are doing it. And, and um, so, so the, the good side of the story, I think, is really a very brilliant dawn. Well, I guess that's why you're still Dean Emeritus at, at, at Duke. Uh, I never thought I'd enjoy a conversation so much with a Blue Devil, but uh, I, I did enjoy your book. And, uh, and, and I really do hope that our viewers and others will, will, will share uh, the, the link to, to this program. Uh, and I want to remind everyone that you can purchase a copy of 10 Years to Midnight, which might be renamed seven or eight years to midnight, uh, by going to interrobangbooks.com. Get that 10% discount. And please do follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, your preferred social media, and go to YouTube to catch up on past programs. And thanks to PwC for being a sponsor of this program as well. Blair, wishing you good health. And thanks, Jim. I have to admit, I, I've now met a Cavalier who's a good guy. You've just changed my entire thought process, but thanks a lot. As well. And I toast to you. Cheers. <laughs>